We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. We are commodities brokers, William. Now, what are commodities? Commodities are agricultural products, like coffee that you had for breakfast, wheat, which is used to make bread, pork bellies, which is used to make bacon, which you might find in a bacon and lettuce and tomato sandwich. And then there are other commodities, like frozen orange juice and gold. Though, of course, gold doesn't grow on trees like oranges. <laughs> uh, clear so far? Yeah. Good, William. Now, uh, some of our clients are speculating that the price of gold will rise in the future, and we have other clients who are speculating that the price of gold is going to fall. Uh, they place their orders with us, and we buy or sell their gold for them. Tell them the good part. <laughs> uh, the good part, William, is that uh, no matter whether our clients make money or lose money, Duke and Duke get the commissions. Well, what do you think, Valentine? Well, it sounds to me like you guys are a couple of bookies. <laughs> I told you he'd understand. <laughs> Tonight's episode is a kind of a special economics roundtable talk. We are joined by uh, three economics professors and discuss everything from the game stonk uh, phenomenon and response the, the some, some, uh, a lot of stuff talking about uh, how um, tech has kind of like inter, intertwined itself into finance but and as well as you know uh, why the uh, Texas power grid is in the shape it's in and kind of like you know, the reasons for that we also to discuss the Kind of the, just the bizarre religious foundings and theological leanings of libertarians, and we finally hit on the discuss the topic of why do libertarians argue like that and other reasons. It is a um, an interesting, wide ranging conversation. If you have uh, once again, we are we are uh, we're able to make this podcast with the help of viewers like you. We do have a Patreon at patreon.com slash giving the mic if you have any questions or comments you can uh, send them to giving the mic at gmail.com find us at giving the mic on giving uh, find us on facebook at facebook.com slash giving the mic and please if you can't tell at least like one friend about us and tell them that there's this weird uh, leftist uh, internet podcast that does both leftist shit and also like pop culture i think they really enjoy it all right and uh without that uh on with the show of a, a more formal uh, opening uh welcome once again to giving the mic to the wrong person we are joined once again by old friends and new we have uh kind of a we have a large gathering of our our virtual agora i guess judging from the backdrop that jacob put on our uh on the group skype uh on the group skype chat group skype on me chat i didn't have anything to do with this this is you Welcome once again. Uh, to, uh, to introduce my two, uh, you know, the two usual co-hosts. Co-host would like to go first to introduce yourself to the viewing audience. And no, this is not being recorded. The video is not being recorded. Audio is though. <laughs> I feel like I'll open act for uh, the headliner. Um, hey, it's usual co-host Garrett. Hi, Garrett. And uh, are and you ready for Jacob? <laughs> 
I mean, you should be the headliner in this one because you actually know about like economics and stuff, right? Yeah, but I know like more than the accounting. You can use Excel than everybody else on this podcast. Well, I'm not entirely sure what public equity is, so I think I'm at a slight disadvantage here. But you guys can explain all of this to me. Private equity, the worst kind. Worst kind. Equity sounds like it could be okay, but. Public equity would be great. I'd fucking love that public the, equity. See, I'm, I'm already contributing. I'm coming up with all sorts of exciting new ideas. <laughs> You're like Socrates. You introduced this this interesting twist on the conversation, and we're all thinking in a different way now. Hell yeah. All right, I got a new one for you. How about DSA hedge fund? Let's do it. <laughs> Let's go. There, are no, there, were no, there were enough people on group chats uh you know look getting into uh getting into robin hood that there's a you know that uh over the last couple of weeks that you know there, there might be something there but anyway the problem is you know you need capital and um uh the, the dsa has unfortunately spent all of its money on swords so. <laughs> tied up swords right now right <laughs> and uh that lo- that uh that voice is uh some of our guests we have three distinguished um uh e- yeah, y'all are really, uh, all three of you are economics, currently uh, employed as economics professors, correct? Currently. Currently. Yes. All right. In some yeah. fashion. In some fashion. Increase respectability. Yeah. Uh, yes. Some, uh, some, we've all kind of like ch- chatted with you all before in some form or fashion through the online screen. Um, I, it, I am terrible at introductions, so I will look, go around the room. Uh, how about, uh, let's see, who wants to go for, who, who would like to introduce themselves first, uh, if you would? Uh, no, I can't. I don't, it doesn't really matter to me. Um, yeah, Eric Dean. I teach economics here in Portland. Uh, went to University of Missouri, Kansas City, uh, along with Mitch Green. And I'm Mitch Green, and I also teach economics here in Portland at, at a local community college. And, um, uh, you know, happy to be here, friend of the friend of the pod, um, uh, UMKC alum, and um, big fan of the late great Frederick Lee. Gotcha. Yeah, and I am Rob Larson, and I too am a economics professor at a community college and uh, alumnus of uh, UMKC. Uh, our tentacles spread to small public colleges everywhere. <laughs> and uh, I live in Tacoma, Washington, though. I don't live in Portland um, because I'm not cool enough. Tacoma's pretty dope. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, give it time enough. Uh, just like everybody got priced out of the Bay Area to head up here, enough people will get, will get priced out of here and head north. And That's I'm really glad to hear sweet. that. I'm really glad to hear that UMKC, uh, you know, alum are in, in, invading our community colleges. That's right. There's a UMKC alum behind every woodpile. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, and the subject for this evening, uh, originally, or our first, we, we had originally uh, had uh, going, we were going to record a, an episode about the game stonk phenomenon a couple weeks ago, but real life and my day job intruded, so we had to scotch that and things in, and because we're in a period of time where uh, decades are happening in weeks. A couple decades happened, and a whole lot of other shit happened, so we're kind of like going from there and covering, um, <laughs> well, as give, as evidenced by the fact that we have, uh, you know, such distinguished economic guests, uh, the, we're going to talk about paleontology today. No, uh, we're talking about everything from uh, a little bit of like the re- the establishment reaction to uh, to GameStop's 
to both on our, uh, you know, to the related topics that have been covered before and of like hedge funds and private equity. Also, uh, we'll talk because it's in the new, because it is literally happening right now as we record this. Uh, the massive winter storm in Texas is going down. And, uh, as a result of how they have particularly, um, how they, they kind of just, you know, how the, uh, how they have structured, ideologically structured their own uh, power grid and the fact that, you know, fucking app companies are, uh, are running parts of, you know, major parts of Texas's power grid. And last but not least, uh, we'll, if we have time, we will dump on libertarians because that's a, that is an evergreen topic that everyone can always, um, can always, uh, go for. Let's see. How should we begin talking about, or at least, well, uh, uh, should we start with the Wall mention the Wall Street bets part of it or begin to talk about that, seeing as how we do have, from the looks of it, a representative of it? Or, uh, how, um, I'm I trying think to think that's of, a good place to start. Sure. Uh, Mitch, would you start, would you, uh, are your thoughts, uh, to, uh, to kick us off? And if, um, if Eric and Rob, Rob, you would like to, uh, chime in too about, um, both the particular, you know, that kind of like little popped off phenomenon, but also, any particular favorite, uh, you know, establishment freakouts and or and or reactions to it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I can I can just sort of I can just take you back to where I was during that week that in that fateful third week of January uh, or fourth week. Um, I don't know. I I was taken by surprise. I didn't really I didn't really expect that uh, to happen. I think that um. Obviously, that was kind of in motion for a while because Wall Street bets was a thing that existed before January 25th. Um, and at, you know, at first I was like, what the fuck is going on? Cause I follow some like financial press people that are pretty smart. Um, like Zero Hedge or? No, 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 no. I, I fucking hate them. Um, oh, okay. Uh, but that's, you know, that's my thing. I, I follow Joe Weisenthal and a bunch of MMT kind of people on Twitter. And, um, and so anyway, Joe will oftentimes post like, Oh shit, this equity is blowing up. What's going on? And, and I was, so that got my attention. And, and, and so, so I, so I looked at it and I'm like, this is insane. So I, so I started reading the Reddit and I was like, this is, this is nuts. Uh, this shouldn't happen. Um, and, uh, and so anyway, yeah, I, I bought some stock, of course, right? Cause diamond hands. Well, my hands are not so diamond. I did, I did sell. And I also got slapped with a very significant, uh, violation of, of failing to have settlement funds in my brokerage account, which which caused me to sort of step back because I didn't have a Robinhood account because um, I sort of like deleted it in protest last summer because I was pissed about something. Oh, I and, thought you were going to say because you're an actual adult, but go on. <laughs> no, no. I mean, honestly, so so the Robinhood account is pretty cool because it doesn't require you to, to keep settlement balances. And, and so that's a sort of like low entry fee way that this kind of got this retail investor thing got, got juiced up. Um, and was sort of seen as like a big democratizing thing. But then, you know, I know enough about like finance to know sort of in the back of my mind that, it, that you're required to have settlement balances and, and margin to, to make trades. But I didn't really remember that. And so when you get used to using Robinhood, you're like, well, this is just like instantaneous fund transfers. You're buying and selling. And nowadays it seems like, uh, you didn't really have the, the wait period you used to have for day trading on Robinhood. And so I think that sort of the, the memory of how, how most brokerage activities are normally conducted faded into the background. 
and some people got burned on that, and I was one of them. And and so I sort of stepped back and I was like, well, oh fuck, I fucked it up. And so like I'm I'm actually currently on a 90 day lockout for a um God, what was it called? It's worse than a good faith violation. But anyway, I I made trades without settlement balances in in the account. And and I started thinking about that, and I was like, well, this is actually on a systemic level very significant for these brokerage firms because Robinhood doesn't own any of that stock. It's simply an app. And it's a shadow bank, really, if you want to think of it that way. And it sort of handles the transactions, but it's still on the hook for the daily um, collateral balances against its clearinghouse and its banks. And so the value at risk measure, which is which is what most quantitative risk um, shops use to value the sort of daily mark to market on the potential loss that you could impose upon the counterparty got really large. I mean, went from a few hundred million dollars to a, a billion dollars o- over the course of the day in terms of magnitude. And that's when, that's when like the sort of quote unquote establishment response occurred. And that's when they started limiting trades. And they did that because they had to. And I'm not defending Robin Hood as a sort of like, you know, sheriff of, of, of Nottingham asshole. But I, but I'm simply saying that that firm didn't have the collateral to do what they were doing. And so rather than being up front with their retail investors, they waited until they got in the middle of a, a potential liquidation crisis and then stopped all the trades. So, I mean, the optics of that are, are incredibly bad. And so that caused, I think, uh, and it wasn't just Robinhood. I mean, Charles Schwab was in that mess. Uh, E-Trade was in that mess. A ton of, like, I don't know if Fidelity got there, but a ton of, like, retail brokerage outfits that sort of tried to follow Robinhood in, in kind of like saying, we're going to absorb those upfront costs a little bit and have no, no cost trades found themselves in that mess because of the sort of incredibly concentrated equity position of a lot of these trades. I mean, like, I think at one point that Wednesday or Thursday of that week, um, like over 50% of the trades or the positions, uh, for its retail investors were concentrated in like four stocks, which is an incredibly risky position. To be yeah, that doesn't, that so, doesn't, that doesn't sound exactly sound good. No, um, it's not. And so the, at the end of the day, the money's got to come somewhere, uh, in terms of that private money, um, uh, lens. And so, uh, you know, what do you do? Do you, do you, you take a sort of blanket liquidation stance, like, okay, everyone stops or everyone has to sort of, clear out their positions or do you target it on those those stocks that have the most volatility and up they took the latter position so uh, so that's what happened and you know i think the sec is going to do some investigations to figure out whether it was appropriate for these these platforms to to do to allow that to happen actually and to, and to do what they did excellent thank you uh rob or eric uh comment and or um any addition? Do you have a tattoo? Do you have a tattoo of a of a of a snowboarder on your arm, Mitch, or is that a skateboarder? That's that's Doc Brown uh, <laughs> riding a fucking hoverboard. Well, oh, it's a hoverboard. Okay. Yeah, and it's <laughs> it's part of a where the hell is it? It's part of a broader Marty McFly kind of Back to the Future thing. So I don't know. I went through this thing in my late thirties where I was like, I'm just going to get all my childhood favorite things tattooed on my body and. Then the pandemic happened and I stopped. Also ran out of money. Yeah, well, that'll do it. Yeah. Made some bad trades, you know. 
that's that's probably I, I would uh, I think that's probably a healthier and more uh, artistic aesthetically pleasing version of doing that than say writing a couple Ready Player One books. Um, <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, Rob and Eric, uh, sorry for the distraction, um, the description, uh, would, uh, your thoughts slash comments, uh, questions and or takes, or, you know, how, how does, how is that as a, as a, uh, as a summary? That's great. I just, uh, yeah, that's a, a very good summary, a much better one than I could do. So I appreciate that, Mitch. Uh, this is, I would just say just for my own part, <laughs> I've been kind of tech obsessed lately and, uh, keeping less of an eye on, uh. Uh, the Wall Street money machines, but it is amazing seeing like how like how this bubble, like such a classic uh, asset bubble, comes out of nowhere and uh, dominates national economic news for days. It only gets pushed off the news cycle when there's like a national disaster that puts half the country out of power for a day. Uh, that was you know seventy billion dollars in losses, considering how short this bubble went on. That's like it's a tremendous uh, amount of money. And it's it's that classic issue, you know, in every. Uh, financial market where you know uh, the systemic risk is an externality to the individual investors, even if it's you know a big, a big hedge fund or even one of those you know mega banks from the last time we had a short selling crisis in 2008 when people short sold Lehman Brothers into collapse and brought that whole cataclysm upon us. Like people are just thinking of the risk that they're taking on in their financial interest investments and that they're individually exposed to, and if they're you know, short selling of a sensitive. Uh, uh, investment bank or uh, short selling some uh, major American retailer, you know, that they're willing to take on that amount of risk, not thinking of what the risk that they're piling into the system. So it's your, it's just that classic little financial risk externality that uh, we always talk about. Excellent. Eric? Yeah, I don't have a whole lot to, to add. To be honest with you, I just got power back on earlier today. So <laughs> I'm just like, I'm warm again. Uh, so I, I have not given any of this much thought recently. Excellent. How um, how long were you out of power? Uh, about two days. Wow, two half, rough. I guess since Sunday night. Damn. Uh, ours, oh, ours, ours, yeah, ours only flickered. Uh, Rob, how uh, up into is like any like massive power issues up in uh, up in Tacoma? Is this or is this only like an Oregon and Texas thing? Uh, yeah, we had a bunch of snow last week, and we haven't had anything in the last couple of days. It's just rained. It always just rains here. So, oh uh, yeah, we've dodged the worst. Gotcha. Wait, can I ask Mitch something? Because he he knows power. Uh, can, can we just bury these lines? Yes. W- wouldn't that stop uh, the outages and maybe the forest fires too? Yes. Okay. It so would, let's let's it, do it that. It would out here, yeah. I mean, the situation. We're going to talk about Texas a little bit later, but the situation in Texas is a little bit different. But like, yeah. I mean, look, I'm going to use this space right now because we're on the topic. I'm gonna I'm gonna make the statement that before we had power lines on telephone poles, they were fucking. They were nailed to the side of a building downtown. I mean, and and that at the time was de- deemed to be socially unpleasing, dangerous, uh, prone to failure, uh, just your classic externalities of public space argument. You know that 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 sort of thing from economics. And so, utilities at that time were forced by social control to uh, to to build proper lines on poles that were set off from buildings. And I mean, that seemed like a big lift and expensive at that time. Now we have telephone poles. So the next question is, is like, okay, we, we push back on that once we can do it again. And you got to put them underground now. Yeah, I don't the, want to get out of order in our podcast, but that's, you know, yeah, we, well, we are the most, you know, of course we are the most, uh, you know, NPR levels of, uh, production and, uh, and formal and formal conversation. 
Although, yeah, the the latest episode of uh, Worst Year Ever that just came out this week has uh, like Robert Evans because that goes, you know, opines greatly on the Oregon history of um of like a lot of because you know, he he's currently in Texas right now uh, for family reasons. And he's like, yeah, it's kind of like the uh, the modern lack of caring about infrastructure whatsoever, and people just yeah. don't want to pay for you know for like burying the goddamn lines. Yeah, but. Excellent. Anyway, so, uh, one question I did have is, uh, and Mitch, you mentioned, well, just to, just to finish up on the, uh, on the game stuff stuff, uh, the game stuff stop. Is there in, uh, you mentioned that because the, the SEC, and I think probably Congress is going to use some investigations too. Is there going to be, uh, do, do any of y'all see any, um, how do you think the, the react, uh, well, two questions. One, how do you think the reaction of, of this from either, from both, like either like the regular, like finance establishment will come, you know, but also like the political establishment, how will the, how will the react, the react, the reactive moves that they make? What is, what's the likelihood they're gonna, they're gonna, you know, overreact, which they usually do, and like piss off a bunch of like Redditors again to have them open up about like a, you know, to open up a war on another front? Oh, I think it's really highly likely. I mean, I think Redditors are really pissed off right now. I haven't been on yep. that. Yeah, I mean, I think we've got a representative here. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe you should speak to that directly. But yeah, uh, it's hey, bullshit, uh, man. Like they're they want to call deep fucking value into Congress and and make him testify, like because he's cool. That's the only reason. <laughs> <laughs> they don't really they don't seem that interested in the actual you know hedge fund that was on the other side of all this they seem to get to just skate through but you know <clears throat> the the guy who you know basically said he liked the stock and made some good arguments about why he liked the stock is the one who's getting you know grilled by these decrepit assholes in in congress you don't see anything weird about that i mean I so, so my view is I I don't really know who deep deep fucking value is. I mean I've seen his picture on the internet. He seems like someone I would drink beers with for sure. Hell yeah. Um, he's probably I mean he probably has a similar T-shirt that I'm wearing. And, um. So so I'm not you know I'm not going to judge anyone's character there. But I think I think it does warrant some hearings on whether or not there was uh, manipulation at play, whether that be a hedge fund or uh you know, front running, um, the nature of, uh, you know, selling flow data and all that stuff. Uh, you know, it should be, a, it should be a broad sweeping set of hearings, um, as to whether or not the rules of the game as such, uh, are, are consistent with like, you know, principles of stability and fairness. Now I know that's a bit of a strange concept given that this is wall street. Um, and I feel a little bit like, I can't believe I'm making this argument, but, um, to be internally consistent, I guess, uh, they would need to look at all these things. And, and yes, some, re- some redditors would be under the microscope for that as well. Cause there is the argument that, look, these could very well just be junior brokers at a boutique fund who decided that they can, they can create a movement on, on Reddit, uh, and expose a lot of people who don't have the same information set that, that they do. And that, that's a very real risk. Um, now, I, I would suspect that the Reddit point of view would be, well, let us take our own risk. And I mean, and that's fair, right? But uh, um, I think the things that are going to come out of this is not so much necessarily that a single individual did something wrong, but rather um, how do we let like fine tech basically grow with very little regulation and 
and, and essentially not have the collateral to to engage in these sorts of activities, uh, causing potential losses that could be systemic. I mean, I think that's the big question. Yeah, at least with uh, it, even with like casinos, like, yeah, the, you know, the house always wins, but at least the house does, you know, usually follows its own, you know, follows the rules of its own game. Then they don't tell you to, uh, you know, put your retirement savings into a casino either. You know what I mean? Like that, that's another difference. But I wanted to, if, if there's time to touch on this, that you, Mitch mentioned the flow data, which I, I found to be kind of one of the more interesting and less talked about things, at least in the press that I read. If that's too dull, we don't have to do it. But I, I, that was something I was trying to understand the, that Citadel owned Robinhood and that's where the flow data comes in, right? Am, am I remembering this correctly? I'm like, murky enough on the details that I don't want to be on the record to necessarily <laughs> make a, a super hot take on that, but... That, that is the claim, at least. Yeah. Um, say, welcome, welcome, yeah you're, you're, welcome to the world of podcasting. If We are nothing if we, are, if, uh, if we do not have our uh, you know, ill-conceived, uh, slightly reactive hot takes, but you know, whatever well, you mean, like. If you take it like, from a perspective of framing it, right? Like, you have the Redditors like... like making their own decision to do this thing. Whether it's a good idea or a bad, it's their decision to make. Meanwhile, there are these companies that, that like their whole business kind of relies on the fact that they can they can make an algorithm that figures out what to do yeah. with, with their positions uh, in, in milliseconds. And they get access to that data before anyone else can possibly even crunch those numbers. Right. And that's yeah, just, I mean that's that's the kind of that's the thing that makes the idea of, of actual hearing so kind of amusing. I've got a I've got an angry dog there. I don't know if that's coming through on the mic, but uh, yeah, I mean the the whole Reddit sub uh, the whole Reddit uh, business model, not Reddit, but um, uh, Robinhood business model, is essentially based on having prior knowledge that allows you to manipulate the markets. So I mean it's it's baked in. Uh, to that. that, that's how I understand it. At least I don't, I don't know. Can anybody actually speak to the details of how that uh, flow data gets used? Oh, no, a question, quick question: What exactly is flow data? Flow data again? Um. So when when retail traders make transactions, make positions, uh, it's a it's basically a database of the order flows of all those trades. So it's essentially a stream. I mean, I, I suspect it's like a, a fast API of data that just flows from the the, the transactions and, the, and the, the placing of orders uh, to some sort of third party um, that that consumes that data and uses it in their algorithms to figure out patterns um, that might emerge from that. So, like, if you have a a rate of flow that's increasing in interest in a particular stock or a sector of stocks or a set of correlated stocks and that sort of a deal, then if you have some good algorithms, then you might be able to kind of figure out the momentum of the value that might emerge from that mm. over the next, over a very short time horizon. Um, and so you would make money off of that uh, if you do it in very large scale, because the cost of, of, of doing that is pretty de minimis compared to the volume that you're trading in. Like, which is which is making another point like okay tr uh, commission free trades are great but to, to engage in frequent day trading as a single person with a few hundred dollars maybe um to do that you need to post if this was done the sort of old way and the fully collateralized way you need to post settlement balances of the value of those trades to be able to, to make lightning fast trades um 
and and you know to avoid that you need to have a margin account with many thousands of dollars uh, that you can that can float the balance of the potential mark to market between the nominal value of the trade and the value of the, and the value of the stock as it floats between the time you made the order and it settles. Um, so you need all, you need that sort of big cash balance. And so like the, the firm on the other end who's buying this flow data has all that money and they have all that, that, that capital that they can kind of use for that. And so they can just like just make lightning fast trades and, and, and profit off the fact that like you've got a little bit of that information. I, that's my understanding of it. And it's very valuable data. Um, which reminds me of an infrastructure, a major infrastructure project that happened a few years ago where they were like trenching and, and, and building like a, a massive dedicated point to point closed circuit fiber optic, um, information leak between Chicago and New York City, um, to sort of like allow high frequency trading to happen more costlessly. Um, which raises other big, interesting political economy questions about how we use resources and for what. Like, we think about the infrastructure. I mean, we can't bury fucking electric lines because it's too expensive, but we can build a goddamn buried tunnel for just a single purpose between two major metropolitan cities over a large period of, of land or a large space of land. So, I mean, it's all yeah, about it. We can, we can build out uh, the computing necessary to mine bitcoins. Right. I mean, it really does speak to just how uh, uniquely uh strange humanity is with with what what we actually decide to do with our resources it's gonna rock when we get like a texas level disaster that is caused because people are mining doge i'm really excited about that one <laughs> uh rob uh your turn or any comment as uh as the the techie bits uh i think are are your are in your realm if you would yeah, well, you know, I, I think uh, uh, there's been a lot more good analysis of this specific episode than what I have. I mean, to you know, my big tech insight into this is just like I I see this as following in a series with like the rise of QAnon because this what we're seeing here is like more and more national events being driven by shitty message boards and 4chan and Reddit creating these large like movements in markets and big new fucked up political cults and stuff. Like this is this is. I spent so many years studying these platforms now, just like watching them just move their become become social and political actors, even like the not exactly Amazon here, uh, these small message boards, they bring together enough people. And it's the big thing about it is, I mean, lots of institutions bring together thousands of people like these things. Like, I don't know what's more under the national radar than like what's what's happening on hmm, what's happening on Reddit's investments uh, board this week. Like, that's not something that people consider a. You know, an object of national attention and seeing it just uh, move huge markets and lead to tens of billions of dollars in losses by shitty hedge fund douches. Uh, I, it just makes me think, like, what tiny, obscure, dumb Internet corner is going to create the next giant religion or whatever godforsaken thing comes next? Uh it's <laughs> simple enough. Uh, but that, that's just the thing I've been thinking about for many days now. Yeah, I was gonna say maybe maybe something awful peaked a little bit too early in the uh, in the civilizational cycle because it's like <laughs> it's ahead of its time, you know. I know. I'm just I'm just flashing back of like the I think the um, so many of us didn't do our jobs that we should have back in the in the mid late nineties of keeping our uh, keeping our parents scared enough to stay offline to. Um, <laughs> But and then again, I don't think uh, I think. Um, well, I was to say I think uh, you know 
the uh, boom, uh, boomer parents aren't exactly the the ones I think driving this. They drive uh, they drive other things. Um, one th- one question I I did th- I did think about, and I'm wondering if it's a bit more because uh, um, there's a bit more. I guess this is more of like a uh, the historical political economy thing mixed in here. Because I remember um, one of the things that popped up was. In, the, in some of the talk over the last couple of weeks, was they talked about how like different you have different sectors, different sectors of capital, almost like not quite warring with each other, but definitely, I was like flashing back to like how in the seventies you had um, wasn't really a kind of a contest, but definitely a changeover from how things went from you know most things were driven by industrial capital, and then by the starting in the mid seventies, uh, like with financialization, it started being driven by financial capital. And I'm wondering if, um, we're, you know, is this big change? But I'm wondering is, um, does, would tech capital be considered a separate thing? Or is it, is it of its very nature that you can't, uh, you can't separate tech capital from either industrial capital or finance capital? Cause especially how there's entirely, you know, all of the, you know, it's, a, or is it to the point where because tech is in everything, there's no, there are no separate sectors anymore? Like, you get what I mean? Sure. Yeah. I think that's a real interesting thing, you know. Yeah. And actually, I argued in the book that uh, I would say now that Silicon Valley is kind of co-dominant along with Wall Street now, which, yeah, you know, has been in the uh, national political economy driver's seat since the Reagan revolution and before, like you said. Uh, so I, I, you know, there are distinct industries, there are different sectors, you know, you know, the energy sectors in the toilet right now, and they were riding high during the Bush administration. So they do have different fortunes. It shows that there are distinct, even though, yeah, they all rely on each other and have all kinds of shared interests and shit. But if you look at how like uh, Silicon Valley has expanded and become like this huge, uh, one of the global dominant centers of power now, if you look at it, it, it's been all about disruption and expanding all these industries and destroying the ability of media to survive on their own and so on. But when it comes to like financial services, like they've been a lot more wary and they'll kind of, you know, circle each other and, you know, a company will work with a bank to make a credit card or to try to like get their health costs down or something like that. But all those things have been sort of piecemeal. You know, there hasn't been a big like Amazon bank push, you know, and not to say that wouldn't happen, but. Uh, it like, was interesting to see how Libra, the Facebook currency, fell apart so hard. Oh, God, I forgot about yeah, I forgot that about was, that. Jesus. That, yeah. Company script. Anyway, sorry, uh, uh, Rob, please continue. <laughs> uh, yeah, just to say that uh, I, I, those, those industries are so dominant now. Obviously, financial capital is essential to everything in the system. But now so is tech. Like I, I, I foresee an era where they – you know, scrap sometimes and make little alliances sometimes. You know, tech is still like new as a pivotal power center goes. So I expect like a period of, you know, skirmishing and flirting with alliances and shit. You know, big capitalists always fight each other. You know, like Rockefeller tried to destroy Carnegie's access to the sea and he had to repurpose a railroad to stay alive. Like they always try to crush each other or absorb each other. So I see him as like having that turbulent relationship right now. Hmm. Uh, thoughts from the rest of you? Well, Eric, you've written about this um, more recently with financialization and also it uh, seems like your area is kind of very much in, in sort of the history of, of American, you know, business enterprise and curious what your your take is on managerial capitalism and that sort of deal. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think Rob's right that fundamentally they're different industries, um, but they I mean, they're they're probably more similar uh than most people think um and there there are you know there are some obvious connections right you've got the uh what are they called the paypal mafia uh some some term like that 
I mean, half half of these, you know, huge uh, tech billionaires came from PayPal. And if you think about what PayPal is, well, it's it's a financial firm fundamentally, right? Um, you know, aside from that, a lot of it comes down to this kind of idea of a service-based economy where somebody else does the actual labor of of producing stuff, uh, and then finance and and tech are you know they're not really concerned with that. They're concerned with uh, moving symbols around, you know. Um, so in a, in a kind of fundamental way, they actually are similar in that respect. Um, and so, yeah, if you, if you kind of look at the history, especially, uh, starting in the seventies, you can see this progression happening, uh, as far back as the twenties. Uh, yeah, the U S economy becomes more finance based and of course, uh, more information tech based and, and at the end of the day, pretty much all of that activity is bullshit. <laughs> yeah, that is that's, that's kind of thing. It did, it did make me. Th- I remember thinking about it something I hadn't really th- uh, again, you know, because it's one of the many natures of um, how we popularly talk about the economy, and because we what we don't talk about the political economy of with the changeover from like heavy, you know. Um, it, you know, it, it's not just like the old the old quote that, you know, the business of America is business, but it's like, yeah, the changeover from industry from industry to finance and all of a sudden, like everybody wanting to go from one to the other. It's like and um, like finance being I guess more favored or something like the newer, shinier thing. The problem is that um, uh, the financial sector employed a whole hell of a lot less people than than like heavy industry and at least. Well, the two things. One, um, when you had, at least when you had, like, uh, you know, industrial capital going, you know, rob- everything, at least with, like, the robber barons, they, uh, those people, they had to actually know how to build something or run something. And, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, they're, you know, they're horrible, you know, predatory capitalists, but at least some of them literally did know how to, you know, run a railroad. Whereas once it switched over to, you know, uh, the finance folks who were only good at the more like conceptual, you know, a much smaller conceptual thing. And now that the fact that we're dealing with the sons of the sons, or I should say, you know, the, uh, the seventh fail son of the seventh fail son of, of like finance geniuses, where it's like a ruling class can't even do that. They don't, you I mean, they're, they're so kind of both like ossified and, I mean, not just inbred, but just, you know, ossified and calcified that they can't even, um, they can't even, you know, None of them, you know, none of them had know how to do anything much less like they can't even replenish themselves properly. And so we now get like this, like, you know, our current sclerotic uh, uh, gerontocracy that we are we're stuck with. I mean, for what it's worth, you know, we we kind of mythologize that the the older, uh, you know, elites, uh, you know, of of a distant past were competent when they they weren't really competent either. I mean, Rockefeller didn't know anything about oil. He knew somebody who knew something about oil. Um, you know, Edison didn't invent the light bulb. Uh, you know, so we've got the Elon Musk of today, and and you know, these are the same kind of myths. It's always been um, an elite class of incompetent people. Uh, and I guess, I mean, your point is still valid, valid though. Um, it's just a matter of how. I guess maybe it's how full of themselves are they. That they actually, you know, it's kind of like when the boss comes down and starts to to try to tell you how to work when he clearly doesn't know uh, anything about what you do. Uh, sometimes I wonder if if these, you know, this gerontocracy uh, would be okay if they just kind of let everybody else get their stuff done. 
I don't, yeah, but I, I don't know if that's even possible because it's one of the things where, um, like with any sort of like sufficiently high like level enough management is, um, like management neurosis sets in, and or which may be a form of like Dunning Kruger, it may not be, but it's it's a sense of like, you know, they um. You know, they can't, they, like, they can't, you know, they can't give, you know, they, uh, much like, again, it, you know, I don't know if this is some sort of like boomer mindset thing, but it's like, they can't possibly hand the reins over to anybody else. They have to be at the center of it. And uh, at some point, I wonder, um, I think I might be the oldest one here. I can't remember, but it's, uh, something like that. But I'm wondering if, if like, if what we're seeing is almost like some sort of like, um, uh, we're getting way off. We're actually we're not really getting that off topic, but at least these things seem so outraged. But it's almost like a scene. It's like this with like we have, again gerontocracy. It's almost like this this, this boomer fear of like a uh, a fear of death and mortality uh, preventing them from retiring, which is um, you know more so than like any sort of oh hello kitty. What's your kitty's name? Oh, that's uh, well. When I adopted her, her name was Lilith. So her name is Thrilleth now. To be cool, nice. that's a good. Tor- that is a good. Uh, that's a good name for a tortie cat. <laughs> Thank you. But it's. But I'm wondering how much of it is kind of um, in a certain sense of like because we'll, we'll talk. We could talk about it just like uh, again. You know, um, ruling class can't replenish itself, and they. But it's just kind of like you know, it's sclerotic. It's it's cemented in power to the point where they can't let go. And so, like any, and I think it's part of the reason why we've been seeing, you know, we've been seeing um, systemic collapse, you know, ca- uh, cascading systemic, uh, systemic collapse for I don't know, at least a year, if not, you know, decades of just like they won't, you know, they just it's like no, they of course, you know, you have octogenarians running every, you know, all uh, every uh, or you know. Multi-millionaire septuagenarians running in every wing of national government. You know, why, 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 why wouldn't that be that way? Yeah, I think a component of this too is that a difference between the generations, um, somewhat, is that is that your grandparents or your great grandparents, like, actually were more likely to have to go like make something happen in their lives. Whereas if you're part of the elite or even like want to be into the elite, there's a there's a very breadcrumb trail led out for you you know what i mean like you go to these institutions you get these degrees from this institution and then and then you will be part of this elite that this other group of people built up whether they were competent or not doesn't matter this notion that we have this sort of infantilized uh uh, um you know grandchildren and children of 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 those people like like coming into the new professional structures the professional strata uh Un- unable to to make decisions basically like, like they know how to do all sorts of stuff but they won't make decisions like the like the gerontocracy does and i think that's why the gerontocracy sticks around just just sort of they have they have a little bit more gumption you know what i mean yeah the uh the, another space balls reference of like i can't make decisions i'm a president oh. <laughs> all right um i mean I'll- there is a there is a financial aspect to this is as well right i mean i i have seen some charts that indicate that Basically, a lot of the money that you would need to actually start a business or expand a business is increasingly moving to the older and older demographics. So, like the the, the actual distribution of the money, if you want people who are you know creative and dynamic and trying new things, unless they happen to come from a diamond fortune in South Africa, then I mean Emerald. they're probably not going to be able to get too far. Emerald. Emerald, Emerald. The, the, his his parents owned the, had a stake in the Emerald Mine, I believe. I knew it was something real shady. All 
I'm just saying I'm glad that I'm uh, more of a Snyder bro than a Bernie bro because, you know, I noticed that Bernie Sanders isn't president, but I am getting a Snyder Cut Justice League next month. So who's laughing now? <laughs> yeah, but it's, they, had, they, they had to put every, they ran every frame through a, uh, uh, they had to run everything through a desatur- through a Snyder desaturator. And what fun is that? That that's that's not funny. All right, I don't I don't appreciate that kind of humor. Won't be talking bad about my boy Zach S. <laughs> I won't stand Looking here. Very forward to his adaptation of the Fountainhead. <coughs> good shit. Is he doing a Fountainhead? He wants to. I think he's going to do a King <laughs> Arthur thing next. But oh god, he did talk about this. He did mention that, didn't he? If he's smart, yeah, he said he wants to wait until it's less political. He says it's too <laughs> political right now. Yeah, once the libertarians take over, uh, it won't be political anymore. <laughs> Just a story about it won't a be cool guy who you know likes to build stuff and is really into, uh, shall we say, a dubcon. One more, really into what? Dubcon. Uh, the uh, dubcon. You got I, I don't. I don't catch a, it. a room full of dudes. Doesn't uh, know what dubcon is. Oh, uh, yeah, I guess this isn't really a fan fiction crowd. Uh, dubious consent. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah, you gotta uh, remember, uh, Natasha is not recording with us, so she's not here to right, uh, catch the um, catch the reference. Yeah, well, there, there's there's some pretty edgy stuff. Indeed, it is uh, one way to put it. All right, um, for uh, for the next topic, do we want to talk? Uh, should we? Uh, um, do we want to get into like uh, hedge fund versus private equity stuff? Or at one point, do we want to take the bridge of? Um, uh, well, Eric you know, is still eating, and he's kind of the the private equity guy. That's true. Well, he's not a private equity guy, I should say for the record. But uh, okay, if he, he just applied himself a little bit harder. <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe I don't know. Should we start on Texas? Or yeah, the Texas as because uh, I think we can um, again. Both my kinda... parents are fine, by the way. Everybody, I know you were worried about it. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, El Paso was not affected really by the by the freeze. So, so I was listening to Alex Jones. Oh, is it true that what happened in Texas is actually the first part of the Great Reset? Is that what's happening? That's the only logical explanation. With Alex Jones, my usual answer is it's probably true. I mean, I don't, I don't have the expertise to to really make that determination, but probably. Yeah, I mean, he's know, been right about 98% of the guys. He's had a show set, for so. like 65 years, you know? Yeah, and he's we like, don't have his resources. It's a network. It says InfoWars Network right there. Yeah. Who did... Oh, no, it was... No, oh, he was the one who... He hired Paul Joseph Watson. He didn't... I can't remember if he hired... If it was Paul Joseph Watson or if it was Dave Rubin that he gave a job to. Like one, one of, Paul Joseph Watson. Yeah, one of the two idiots. But I'm just wondering, like, how much... Uh, has he ever actually said if he consumes his own product at all? Because I'm kind of curious uh, if any of the uh, like, what level of like, of uh, like dosage of the of like of like heavy metals or the toxic or like toxic shit that's in whatever supplements he's hawking, he has personally consumed, and like at what point? Well, I mean, he he claims he takes a lot of it, and I I, I assume that's true because why would he lie? And I I should also mention he's also doing fine, by the way. His studio is apparently losing power quite often, but he's still broadcasting as much as he can. 
just just gonna be one of those guys yelling it. He's gonna have to yeah, he'll he'll have to do his portable studio, which is him doing a front facing uh, you know, uh, front, front phrasing three hour rants into his, uh, into, uh, his phone of that stupid, like, Infowars, like, whatever the hell that weird, weird, like, you know, weird, like, wannabe armored monster truck thing that they have. But anyway, uh, but the thing about, the thing on Texas, real quick, is just that, um, cause I think it, it makes an interesting bridge, uh, a bridging point from our previous talk about, like, uh, both like Silicon Valley and finance capital, also in in fintech. Does anybody want to? Um, I guess uh, so you talk about Texas and apps, but also if you wouldn't mind a a small like a small smidgen of theory of why electricity can't be uh, traded like is 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 any other like uh, you know uh, com- uh, commodity on the market, you know, like your pork belly or your orange juice, like you would have for for breakfast or however that line goes. Commodities are agricultural products, like coffee that you had for breakfast, wheat, which is used to make bread, pork bellies, which is used to make bacon, which you might find in a bacon and lettuce and tomato sandwich. I can I can take a stab at this stuff. I've thought about this stuff a little bit. Full disclosure, I work I work in the, the electric energy industry at an undisclosed, unnamed location. Um, so... Uh, so electricity is a peculiar commodity. Wholesale electricity in particular is a peculiar commodity. Um, it is, it is actually bought, sold, and traded the same way pork bellies are. But the key difference is that you can't store it really. Uh, and so, so essentially you can, you can say, you can say, all right, I want to buy 100 megawatts of, of power for the month of March, right? And that's a futures contract, just like any other commodity futures contract. Uh, and those will sort of trade very similarly. But what really matters, though, is on the day-to-day operations, uh, the grid operator has to, uh, has to like, very accurately and very, like, with very narrow margin of error balance supply and demand for energy uh, demand versus supply. And so that can cause, those imbalances can cause some pretty significant spikes in what's called the spot market. And so, so essentially what happens, like, for, so in Texas, um, even if you wanted to, you couldn't really cover your, your, your energy demand because there was some environmental and technological constraints that froze up and undermined the, the technical ability to generate electricity given normal levels of demand. Um, and contrary to people like Dan Crenshaw's view, uh, this is not the fault of of wind power, although uh, the wind turbines built in Texas don't have the sort of nice anti-freeze technology. Mm-hmm. And, and and to be honest with you, you're, you're putting a wind farm in, in Texas. You, you probably don't really need it under most circumstances. That being said, um, most of the issue was the fact that the natural gas pipelines froze up and the oil wellheads froze up and, and essentially the ability to supply the baseload firm generation was was undermined. Um, now I'm going to take this opportunity to call out Dan Crenshaw as a liar and a coward because he is a liar and a coward. Um, he knows precisely what happened and he knows it wasn't caused by wind farms, but he's going on TV to say that it was because he's a coward. So I'll see you in the street, Dan. Let's go. Um, <laughs> but anyway, one bet to another. Half of you, at least. <laughs> yeah. 
so, uh, so back to the main question. So Texas is fucked right now, and it's fucked because of institutional design. Um, the the energy market in Texas is very different than anywhere else in the country. Um, there's a there's a, a grid management sort of quasi public agency called ERCOT, which is an acronym that stands for the Energy Reliability Corporation of Texas or Council of Texas. I forget exactly which one. Uh, and they are sort of loosely regulated by another quasi-public entity called the National Energy Reliability or North American Energy Electric Reliability Corporation, NERC. And anyway, uh, there's some old history related to World War II and like trying to coordinate utilities in Texas to sort of manage their energy demands to provide for the war effort uh, that created that grid that is now the, the Texas ERCOT grid. But for Texas reasons, um, they don't have any real inter- interconnection. They don't have significant interconnection, interties between the adjacent reliability coordinators. So um, so their ability to import and export is pretty, um, pretty limited. Uh, and, and so you set, you set that up as a structural context and then you introduce, uh, neoliberal market design principles. Hmm. Uh, and there was some like energy industry reform stuff that happens in the late sixties, uh, that, that kind of moves, moves the sort of general, um, regulated utility. Um, uh, let's see. How do I want to say this? The sort of vertically integrated regulate, regulated utility monopoly model. Um, towards a sort of a long, slow process of, of deregulating it, which really finally culminates in the 1990s. And and Texas did it on, on a level that's really not, not shared anywhere else in, in North America. And so essentially the way it works is the system is engineered to act as if it's like a, a, a spot market, a bazaar, like a, a sort of a, um, um, abstract idea of what a marketplace is where people just buy like meet together in a market and haggle and buy and, and sell and that sort of thing. There's supposed to be like a lot of competition and that's supposed to generate um, co- sort of quote unquote efficient outcomes as defined by economists where, where essentially, um, you know, everyone is paying the sort of true price of, of, of the scarce resource and all that. Uh, and that kind of works all right in normal conditions, um, setting aside sort of public control issues and all that. Uh, but it doesn't work at all very well in extreme case issues um, where you don't have redundancies. You have economizing or minimizing on kind of like big, big capital spend sort of reliability upgrades and redundancy projects and that, and the like. Um, and so I would like to highlight a villain uh, in this story. His name is William Hogan. Ah, he's yes. A, he's a distinguished professor at, at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, and he's a principal agent in this whole neoliberal market design aspect, uh, particularly in ERCOT. And he put out a statement, I think yesterday, um, and he's sort of defending this. He's like, yeah, it's, ne- it's, 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 it's tragic, it's inconvenient, but it's absolutely necessary, uh, for people to feel this pain. So they learn how to, um, uh, adjust instantaneously to their, to their demand for electricity in the real time, oh, which is really not how this thing is structured. It's a very technologically determined system. Uh, institutions don't move that quickly. Uh, and in the face of a unprecedented cold snap, um, you can't get that, that, that response and demand to even make, uh, make the market clear, even if you wanted it to. So, yeah, if I, if I may, uh, reading uh, from a, um, an article, I think this is in the times or something. Um, Mr. Hogan, a professor of global energy policy at Harvard's Kennedy School, the one who designed 
uh, uh, Texas's weird fucked up uh, uh, system. Uh, anyway, the, the, see, a professor of energy at Harvard's Kennedy School acknowledged that while many Texans have struggled this week without heat and electricity, the state's energy market has functioned as it was designed. That is, that design relies on basic economics. When you, you know, this is when you know that you're in some deep shit uh, ideology here. Uh-huh. Basic intel- yeah. basic economics. That design relies on basic economics. When electricity demand increases, so too does the price for power. The higher price forces consumers to reduce energy use to prevent cascading failures of power plants that could lead the entire state in the dark while encouraging power plants to generate more electricity. It's not convenient, Professor Hogan said. Again, they're using his title. It's not nice. It's necessary. Yeah. There we go. So, um, so Hogan... Hogan's lying again. The theme of this podcast is I'm going to call all the people I don't like liars and cowards. Um, and so Hogan is lying because he's he's presenting a picture of a very stylized supply and demand graph where there's a temporary imbalance and there's supposed to be a price adjustment uh, on both the demand and the supply side that brings it back into a sort of new equilibrium. But but what he's not owning up to, and he's smart enough to own up to it, is the fact that the demand curve in, is is vertical. Uh, for, for, for energy right now. The cliff, And the yeah. supply curve is shifted to the left of the demand curve, and maybe maybe it was upward sloping for, for a space, but it's, it's also vertical, and they're not going to cross. Um, and so you can't get those curves to intersect, and you can't get a market solution. Um, and so there's no amount of, like, individual adjustment that could occur to bring about the sort of results uh, that Hogan um, is, is using in a pithy statement. I mean... A lot of these prestigious, like Ivy League types, um, in public just lean on really rudimentary Econ 101 arguments that are passed off as, as religion. Yeah, I was going to say, how much of this is just like just dumb guy, sub Laffler, Laffler curve, um, like just, just, you know, even that, you know, the sta- statements and belief le- letter levels that even like, you know, drunk first year, undergrads would not you know stake this much um uh you know stake this much faith faith in it like you have to be you you have to be a pretty special subject and a pretty special example to um for harvard to, to hire you for this well you know the, the thing is the thing that's disappointing is that he's very smart i, I imagine he's, he's he's brilliant in 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 certain measures um he's just an ideological hack he's a fraud right yeah so he uses yeah. that name and that big thing to kind of get big consulting fees and contracts and continue to push a certain pet project. And I'm sure his papers that he's published to get where he's at are, are, are fine by the standards of the profession. But I think, one, the profession has some serious issues to grapple with in terms of intellectual honesty. And, and two, the sort of um, the priestly nature of an economist in the Ivy League is something that we need to square with uh, as a society. Yeah. And, and as priestly- some real complicated consequences. Priestly is a really good word, and it makes me think of something sort of analogous to what Mitch is talking about, which is that, you know, very smart people can can get into the weeds uh, of nonsense very easily. You know what I mean? Like, like, um, look at which look at the, you know, witchcraft and, uh, and, and those phenomena in, in the Middle Ages. It's like, that was incredibly complex. And some of those people were, you know, had these incredibly, you know, a- abstruse systems in their heads. And then, but all to find there weren't any witches, you know what I mean? Or, or phrenology is another example. Like phrenology could get very complicated. Now I understand that like, you know, being an economics professor now is actually mathematically like much more difficult. But I'm just trying to say like along the same lines, smart people can, 
get very deep into nonsense. And I think that that's what that's what I see when I when I look at these phenomena as a non-professional, you know? Yeah, it it's one of those like rule of thumbs to remember that the your average your all things being equal, your average cult member is of above average intelligence than than most folks. Uh it, it what we consider like intelligence, which is kind of like, you know, computational ability effectively, uh doesn't prevent you from believing strange things or just completely dumb things or you know being you know with doesn't prevent you from getting your um much like you know certain much like a like a hockey referee have your head so far up your own ass you can only see the game through closed circuit television um like if i if i min max my D character uh and like dump wisdom to throw in intelligence, I'm going to get myself into trouble in some some cases, right? Yeah, there's a reason why. That's the thing I keep bringing up is that there's a reason why okay. um, why you know thinking you know cognition is two different stats in D and D. The difference between intelligence and wisdom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, doesn't this sort of go back even further though? I, uh, I like uh, one of the things with the French Revolution, if I remember correctly, was that there was a lot of confusion as to what the actual you know, economic status of France was. I mean, that gets into the whole thing with uh, Jacques Necker and how much debt did the king actually have? And there was a lot of, you know, opaque stuff that they would say about it and they weren't forthcoming and they didn't share a lot. And it was assumed, you know, the, the common folk don't need to know any of this. It's not their problem. And a, a lot of the decisions that were being made were financial. They were basically saying, we need to put money toward this. We need to raise taxes to support this. And, you know, this is we're the people in charge. We're the experts. You guys just shut up and do what we tell you. But I don't I don't think I think the I don't I think the the disagreement or the confusion or whatever you want to call it with the, that led up to the French Revolution wasn't a matter of it wasn't a, it, it wasn't an, an argument about type. Or category, it was it was pretty much, um, what was it? Was it, it Comte de Rue? What's the what, there's a word? What was the word? There's a there was the t- the name for that term that I think Necker or whatever had to you know actually had to do after the uh, for the accounts of uh, Louis the Sixteenth of actually figuring out exactly it's like okay how much in debt are we? And it was one uh, of those Comte de Rue. Yeah, thank you. Which I'm mispronouncing, but yeah, <laughs> I say that as. Uh, uh, my copy of uh, Mark Steele's Vive la Révolution, uh, a Mark, which is effectively a Marxist uh, uh, hist- uh, stand-up history of the French Revolution put out by Harry Market. Uh, Mark Steele is a British uh, former SWP member, a British Marxist uh, stand-up. We talked about that. Yeah, but the um, but the entire thing that led to the French, well, one of the big crises that led to it wasn't so much of like, like the, it wasn't like, you know, arguing what, like the kind of economic systems. It was just a matter of money of like, wait, ex- you know, exactly how far into debt are we? Yeah, but what I'm saying is that a big part of it was uh, basically this idea that these people are wizards who know how to handle the money and them basically making things way more complicated than they needed to be in order to obscure the fact that they did not have a firm grasp on the situation yeah it's kind of like you know gentlemen we have what's the line from blazing saddles another uh mel brooks uh uh, from another mel brooks character uh i should say a mel brooks directed film where he casts himself as a political leader of uh gentlemen we gotta justify our phony baloney jobs um (laughs) 
<laughs> but no, part of this is just. But I'm actually. Uh, but I want to wonder. It's like because all of y'all have taken. Well, most of y'all have taken far more econ and business classes than I ever did. You know, I was an engineering major. Um, have you ever? And I even asked my brother this. Who went to? My brother was a got, uh, was a business major at a Division two school that he played football for, and apparently one of his professors actually was an advisor to. Um, Howard Phillips, who I believe was the 1996 Libertarian candidate. Uh, mm-hmm. but I remember asking him, I sent him that clip, that little, like, you know, that little newspaper clip, and I was like, I'm like, did you ever encounter anybody, any faculty, you were even student, but usually faculty who was like that ideological, high, ideologically hidebound, that, that kind of like just, you know, dumb guy econ one, you know, sub econ 101 was, you know, they, they just accepted that as, uh, as like their core belief. Of like you know, and uh, this is a question for any of you. Like, have you, in your schooling, did you ever did you ever encounter anything operating uh, to that level? In degrees, I mean, I had the privilege, I guess, of of going to a graduate program that was um, had successfully purged itself of the of the sort of neoclassical ideologues. Uh, Rob Rob's nodding because he knows what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was a, a distinctly heterodox tradition. So Marxists, uh, you know original institutional economists in the American tradition, uh, you know, some, some, some anarchist radical political economy guys and that sort of deal. But in undergrad, I did, I did experience this with, with some professors who were like, you know, when I was kind of reading critically and, and asking about like, you know, for instance, the claim uh, you're in a macro class and the claim is that the great society stuff, um, caused the inflation of, of the seventies and, you know, and so, so the implication is you can't have nice things. Um, and so I would just, I would just ask him, you know, hey, is, is there any evidence for that? And he'd be like, go fuck yourself. Of course, it's in the, it's in the literature. I'm like, well, what's the, what's the evidentiary basis for this? And it's like, you know, they get really upset when you, when you press them on this because it's a shared um, set of religious tenets. To be honest with you, there's not a strong empirical base for those claims. And so. Uh, I, I think that might be the only discipline I've ever encountered because I've taken a lot of different inner, you know, I've, I've dipped my toe. It took me 10 years to get a bachelor's degree because I dipped my toe in many different types of things that were interesting to me. Geology, you know, you know, sort of, you know, arts and letters more broadly, you know, physics, that, that sort of stuff. And, and economics is the only discipline I ever encountered where you had that level of kind of a, a reactionary ideological commitment. I can't think of anything else. I never took a business course, so maybe that's different. But let's say, Rob, you wrote a b- whole book on this stuff. Uh, what's your take? Yeah, you know, uh, economics. I always say it's you know, people always say it's the conservative of the social sciences. You know, and I mean, I think that makes sense. I always tend to say myself, it's it's too important to be left alone by outside power centers that favor different opinions. You know, if you're teaching sociology at some campus somewhere. Young kids will take your class and they'll think about a lot of interesting things and, you know, then they'll move on to their careers. But economics is how people learn everything about money and employment and investment and production and more and death and infinity. All that stuff comes out of there. So it's always, you know, like you go to a business campus, uh, you know, to a you know a business school on a campus. And it's always some of the nicest buildings on the campus and they have very nice uh, facilities and resources. And the professors are all very well paid, and they all have uh, endowed names for their professorship. You know, like the Mister and Mrs. Martin Moneybags Chair of Economics. And it's always you know p- people whose positions are funded by wealthy alumni 
who went out to make money in some godforsaken way in business. And so, of course, who are they going to favor to take those positions? And so, you know, I mean, a lot of economists are really earnest. And, yeah, they have kind of like broadly dumb conservative or liberal Keynesian ideas about how things work. But they're like in good faith and they are only kind of in touch with like the really ideological part of the field. But it's at the undergrad level that we give you the huge piles of uh, bullshit and let people move on to the rest of their uh, educational career without saying, well, actually, the idea of externalities really undermines market efficiency from market bubbles all the way to climate change. And actually, markets, you can't count on them being competitive. Sometimes they're natural monopolies like local utilities or online platforms. And there are all these really important exceptions that kind of leave the theory a pile of rubble by the time you're done with a full econ degree. But most people never go anywhere near that far. But in my experience, though, like the place where I personally uh, found like the most the people who are most, yeah, like uh, intellectually and fully invested in the goofy, yeah, supply and demand 101 prototypical econ view of the world. Uh, not so much economists, and probably, of course, because I, too, like uh, Mitch went to U of Missouri, Kansas City, which if people are listening and they want to go to school for an econ education that won't be a pile of bullshit and lies, uh, that's an option that's available to you. You know, no program is perfect, but there's a lot going for it there. Uh, the late Fred Lee and uh, many of his colleagues did a lot of work, too turn that program around and make it really valuable. Uh, but when I, I did all my econ undergrad stuff at uh, the Kelly School of Business in Bloomington, Indiana, at Indiana U, because that's where I went for my undergrad, which was in biology, which is a whole other issue. Uh, then I go over to the Kelly School of Business and took my basic econ undergrad. Oh, my God. Like, I went through what they put young business people through for their econ, and it's the dumbest, most ruthless, most cheap conformism you can imagine. It's It's really lame. Uh, there's a lot of problems around with it. But some of those business school undergrad instructors who are very like world grabbers, they are absolutely into this stuff and to the extent they can stomach terrible fiction. Yeah, they'll pick up Ayn Rand and its edgy sex scenes and uh, enjoy it like that. It was where I saw the most commitment to that was undergrad business uh, students and instructors. That was my personal experience. Yeah. So that. I have a business degree. Uh, I have a, just a bachelor's in accounting, and uh, um, I found that I can confirm. Well, I can't even confirm the economics bit of it because because I had uh, Yusuf. He was my at P, at PCC. He was my economics professor, and and you know he's he's a pretty open minded dude, uh, friend of the show. But what I what I guess what I noticed, and maybe this is just at, at like Portland State University, which is like a whatever school you know in a in a in a you know smaller metropolitan area. It's, it was more, you got a lot more, like you didn't, I didn't get a lot of ideology from it. It was just, you know, people like they knew they were getting an accounting or a finance degree so that they could go make money somewhere, you know, like that was, and I guess that is the ideology, but, um, I didn't see like the flag waving for it, you know what I mean? But the professors, you know, of course it's there. And I, and there was definitely a lot of like, read the world is flat. I heard that a lot of times, which like made me, you know, made me want to, uh, run away. The Thomas Friedman book. Oh, see, that sounds like Friedman stuff, uh, yeah. Yes. But you, mostly you just get a lot of, you know, uh, uh, like Porter's Five Forces of, of comp- competition and shit like that. Like, that's what I remember, uh, 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 sort of mouthful of that. And yeah. I, I hated going to business school, so what yeah. do I know about it? The, well, that is one thing. Yeah, um, Rob, how, how much of the – I think I, – I can't remember where I encountered this thing, but someone said that the whole point of the, the, the big thing to remember about all of these, like – uh, you know, titans of early or mid 20th century, like libertarian writers, thinkers, whatever you want to call it, is that like, they weren't economists in such, like they were, 
or in any sort of like, you know, social scientist or anything. They were all, they were effectively, you know, to a man, like they were all theologians and they're all like, you know, uh, people who were, you know, all like, you know, um, we're all moralizers rather than any, you know, trying to write about any sort of like, uh, empiric phenomena. Yeah. And there's different levels of covering their tracks and seriousness there. You know, now these dumb schools of thought are big, are big arenas. So there's, um, there's definitely a variety, but if you look at like the classic texts, like you were saying, yeah, those foundational 20th century conservative econ writers, it's kind of amazing to me. Like when I was working on uh, capitalism versus freedom and reading all these hoary right wing classics, it's amazing how much they're just like long, but they're book length lists of right wing demands. It's just I insist this is how markets work and I'll insist here's why the government can't cope and here's why Keynesianism will fail and socialism can't be considered like, but it's all none of it's substantiated. None of it gives you like real convincing reasons like, you know, hold up the Soviet Union and we're done now. Like just like the tiniest amount, uh, like it's in particular, I always think of, you know, Hayek and Friedman's famous books because those were ones that were, you know, yeah. uh, very imperiously recommended. Yeah. By faculty and by uh, the kids, you know, when you look at these programs and they have like no footnotes, they have no, except to their own like writings, you know, and there's, there's, there's so little. Yeah. That suggests this is a scientific field and we're doing real research with it and coming to real conclusions. It's, you know, here's why stupid FDR briefly put off the right wing project of bringing us completely under the control of super powerful, wealthy people, which is nice fig leaf for all that stuff. Uh, yeah, I don't know, it's, it's kind of weird reading that stuff. And, and I remember Finkel, freaking Norman Frankelstein, no less, saying, uh, you know, they aren't social sciences, they're social ideologies. And, you know, which was kind of getting at that earlier, too. I feel like that is, you know, it's a dumb, ugly truth. And again, there's lots of sincere work in the field. I don't want to say it's all garbage at all. But uh, you know, the version of it that the majority gets is incredibly worthless and I, super ideological, too. Yeah. And I wonder, Listen, like, baby, you don't need sources if it's axiomatic. <laughs> oh, holy shit. I should have thought of that. <laughs> Dang. That's right. I, I think the Hayek thing is, uh, I always wonder about Hayek because I know that he was sort of a big uh, Friedrich Nietzsche fan. Well, you know, Nietzsche's like kind of famous for being like, we need new myths. And it yeah, makes me wonder about like contemporary economics, whether, especially, cons, you know, conservative. Yeah, it was like, which, of the, which, of the Hayek, uh, Friedman stripe, like whether it is like just a new form of myth making that they just believe like this is just a better way of, of, of doing the world and society. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, that's, that's precisely what they were doing at Mont Pelerin. That's what it seemed like to me, but. Yeah, it's like which yeah uh, which which era, which era of Nietzsche though because the uh, shit kind of changes depending on who his editor was. Um, <laughs> well, well, I mean, I, I guess I'm saying then I can answer your question, Jeremy. I mean, sort of later period, like 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 uh, thus book Zarathustra and Nietzsche, like the the when he's talking about myths, new myths. Okay, you know yeah. I mean, like we had the old myth, we need to replace it with something new. Uh, you know, and, and it, in an early in his career, it was the Dionysian versus the Apollonian, and then later it sort of changed. And I, I can't speak intelligently about that, so I'm gonna duck out. Well, and you can, and you call yourself a podcaster. I would say, I mean, I don't know how we're getting off track or anything, but I would say that um, I think economists, I think it's just normal to traffic in myths, and I think, I think economists that are honest recognize where those myths are. Uh, and are transparent about those. Um, and then there's most of the profession which takes for granted um, the myth as a sort of new time religion. I mean, all the big names that have crafted, uh, you know, major theoretical movements in the discipline at one point or another have sort of admitted to this. I mean, you, Paul Samuelson, 
uh, had that famous essay at some point. I want to say, damn it, Eric, was it, is it in the sixties that this, that this happens? But essentially there, he's talking about, um, you know, you need to preserve the myth of the balanced budget. Um, because otherwise, you know, societies will run amok and do all sorts of big things. And we don't have old time religions anymore. So we need a new time religion. Yeah. Yeah, So it's that sort of deal. Uh, Uh, David Colander wrote, uh, 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 this is actually, MM, there's a lot of kind of critique of MMT stuff, uh, in the last few years. Mm-hmm. And Colander wrote, um, wrote a paper making exactly that arguments. And I think he actually quoted the Samuels, uh, arguments. He called it plausible lies. Uh, and it goes back to a, um, some conversation somebody had with, uh, Maynard Keynes, uh, cause evidently Maynard Keynes had one time said, well, we can't say certain things because, you know, that would, that would be bad for for statesmanship or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they, they can't uh, they can't break kayfabe. It's yeah, it really is that. I mean, there's yeah, yeah economists, uh, interestingly, have been kind of forthright with, at times at least, with their views that you know we're not doing a science here. We're we're telling a story uh, that's you know we think needs to be told for political reasons or moral reasons or whatever they think you know. That story needs to be told. I, I did want to say Robert Nelson wrote a book called Economics as Religion. Uh, That's right. About 20 years ago uh, that that made exactly that argument. He said there, well, exactly what uh, Samuels, uh, Samuelson was saying, that we don't have priests anymore so much as we have economists. That's what it seemed like. I mean, honestly. Well, they, somebody did make uh, somebody did make the, the oh, shit, we're running late on, late on time. Somebody did make the, the point uh, that... Um, at some point, the and this probably was like some sort of like mid late eighteenth century thing, but the in, some sort of like you know like a po- late enlightenment deist thing of like at one point um, people just were sort of referring to the markets instead of saying the hand of God, but you know, effectively, but they were effect, but through usage they were you know more effectively synonyms. I could be remembering incorrectly, but I believe uh, guest Mitch made almost that exact statement uh, the first time he was on this podcast. Was that before or after the whiskey hit? <laughs> I, you know, my, my, I'm, I'm personally very impressed that my memory is as good as it was to remember that that happened. So I don't remember the, the whiskey chronology, unfortunately. <laughs> so, so what I'm getting from this is that God is mad at Texas. <laughs> yeah. I didn't used to think so, but it seems like it. For not being gay enough. Well, certain. Well, I mean, certain neighbor. I get, well, with the exception of certain <laughs> neighborhoods. Well, not enough neighborhoods where they're gay enough. How about that? Rob, you said you have. You're running out of time. Um, is there? Well, is there enough time for one last question? Sure. Um, this is something. This is. This has been one. Of, not necessarily a bugaboo, but this is something I keep. Um, I've been thinking about like more and more. Uh, especially with like, um, well, I mean, the, this, this, this question, but also more and more qu- uh, questions about, um, I think we, as a, as an entire, like, Western leftists, especially, we really need a popular understanding of, like, what liberalism is, its history, and, uh, like, its particular, like, obs- its ideological obsessions, because it's similar with, with capitalism's, like, you can't, you don't know, you can't understand where you need to go to until you understand what you're currently drowning in. That aside, uh, and I mentioned this really early on, this is a kind of an open question for y'all is, and this is similar to like, you know, uh, you know, under, <laughs> undergrad experiences in ideological horseshit is if you could, uh, if anyone wants to opine on why do libertarians argue like that? 
or talk like that. A very, there's a very particular way, and a lot of them sound uh, in a very, very particular Ben Shapiro-like way that they talk and that they argue from. And my question is, how the hell did that happen? Like what kind of like some sort of weird like pedantic like John Stossel. Well, there, yeah, there's that. But it's, it's kind of a thing of like because I noticed that um, like Ben Burgess, it's the Stossel effect. Yeah, Ben Burgess. Like last week, if you uh, if you listen to Ben Burgess's uh, give him an argument, had on a uh, a Libertarian Party uh, at one point put his put his hat in to be the Libertarian uh, candidate, but is also a homesteader, uh, which is really hilarious. But I'm wondering like. Can anybody find like why do libertarians talk like that? Because it's kind of a thing where like leftists will use history and libertarians will use like some sort of like batshit thought experiment, whatever that I don't like. I can't even explain it. But you know, would any of you have uh, any opinions? Yeah, I got, I got it. Oh, I've got a damn opinion about it. Uh, yeah, to me, this <laughs> is what comes to the fact that this whole school of thought is you know the New Deal, big government. You know you're diluting markets, you're warping them with fiscal policy and Keynesianism. That's terrible. It's stupid. You don't want to do that. Smart people are you know, classical liberals and libertarians, and they want markets first and minimal government and menarchism and so on. But the big thing is the New Deal, and you know broadly speaking, as far as its economic policies, the New Deal is really popular. And the Great Society is really popular, and people want. Social Security and people love Medicare and people are very open to Medicare for all because these programs are you know, efficient and they're universal, even though they include rich people, which suddenly is a line no one will cross, even though the fire department will put out your mansion, too. Uh, no one cared about that. So to me, like this is what comes from you have a whole culture of nerds who, rather than using their nerdy skills for something positive, use it to think things were so good back when we had all powerful industrial patriarchs. Everyone around me likes Social Security and OSHA and the minimum wage and the EPA. They're dumber than me. Everything about how they think about the world and people and politics, including the way they talk to people and how they speak, uh, in my view. And Rob, they yeah, have yeah. read at least 30 pages of John Locke, so they're pretty smart. You know what I mean? Ooh, okay, I'll back up a little bit there. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty heinous. And, you know, I don't know. I've read a huge amount of this stuff. You know, I wrote a book-length rebuttal about it because I was so sick of people recommending stupid road to serfdom to me after years after having read it. You're like, all right, there's only one way to stop this. So you commun I communicate with that a lot. And just my opinion is this is what happens when people feel like they're smarter than something that's po un almost universally popular. Like, I just must be smarter than everyone else. And everyone else is just such a sheep that they'll throw away their liberty for the flimsy reassurance of an old age or a disability pension. Oh, fools. Like that, in my view, that's a lot of their intolerable way of speaking and talking to people. Uh, comment. <laughs> yeah, you no, know, that, that seems really validating. I feel like this is in, in some ways a little <laughs> bit of a therapy session for me, but, um, <laughs> it's welcome to podcasting. <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to make a point a little bit about the, um, cause Jeremy, you asked about the history piece about, you know, sort of, you know, it, by comparison to sort of maybe leftists who draw upon a more historical method, um, you know, like libertarian ideology, whether it's in economics or political theory, is, I mean, it basically has this artificial bracket of history that, like, it precludes prehistory or even, like, anything, like, anything that's not ultra-modern. Um, so basically after John Locke. Um, and then they don't, and then they just sort of ends at 1990, with like 
or whatever the was it is it ninety or ninety one when the Berlin Wall comes down? I can't remember exactly. The yeah, when Fukuyama wrote and yeah. history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Berlin yeah. Wall came down in eighty in eighty nine. Soviet yeah. Union broke apart. Well, fizzle apart in in ninety one. Yeah. Yeah. So it's um. Yeah, that's that long that long nineteen eighty nine. I guess. Um, <laughs> the long array. Yeah. So uh, so I mean that's the bracket you live in, and so like. You don't need history. I mean, it's all just, you can just reason from first principles. Um, history is actually really um, problematic because, like, to, to have, like, this sort of, like, market-based ideology, you, you can't consider a world in which maybe credit predates markets or, or money predates markets or money predates barter. Or debt, debt, predates, or debt barter. predates money, yeah. Yeah, so, like, there, there are all these sort of, like... Um, problematic historical record things that that totally fuck up the Mangarian story of money uh which is which is which is critical to the Hayekian story of exchange which is critical to any sort of um any kind of like Austrian economic approach which is which is the underpinning of the libertarian uh exchange model and so um and institutions are messy right so so you don't want to deal with those either so all of this gets eroded with the long arc of time, and it just ends in 1991. So why would you deal with it? So everything else is just a, a temporary departure from that that middle space in history that's not in history. Um, and so no, I don't know. Like you, like, you just have to reason really fast. You have to talk really fast and be like, you missed this, sir. You know? I'm really not libertarian. Eric? I mean, yeah, it's just it's an easy... It's an easy kind of ideology to, to hop onto, right? It's um, in, in the sense of it being, you know, pro markets and anti anti governments. I mean, the whole society we live in is is you know from from birth you're told you know pro markets stuff and look at how how the government screws up things. For what it's worth, the government screws a lot of things up, so uh, yeah. they're going to be right sometimes. Um, <laughs> you know, I've had I've had good friends who are libertarians and I. Uh, disagreed on just about everything that was uh, economics related but we could both agree on on uh, you know foreign policy um, yeah it's it's an easy it's an easy uh, ideology uh, and you know that it has the the kind of uh, that basic sleight of hand of, of if the market ever screwed anything up it wasn't because of the market it was because of the government uh, which if you're looking at corporations is kind of the the biggest institutional issue of, uh, of our times. Uh, that kind of allows you to say, oh, well, corporations are, that's just because of the governments. Uh, so I can kind of sweep that under the rug. So uh, every conversation I've ever had with a libertarian about corporations, it's, it's always this, some sort of sleight of hand to be like, oh, no, that's, there's no, that's not a market thing or that's not, that's somebody else's fault. It's, it, uh, it's very hard to, to deal with corporate power and, and that ideological framework. Yeah, that's an interesting point because it's like the people who do capitalism love having corporations and yet you have this other group of people that say they know everything about capitalism and they say, well, it shouldn't be like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. It just needs more competition. <laughs> oh, more okay. Competition. Um, yeah. And that's, that's actually a pretty appealing idea and you get it with like, you get it with progressives all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. Liberals all the time. I mean, you get like, that's like, that's the whole sort of Elizabeth Warren model. Uh, which is not, it, it's, it's not like she's not an aberration. She's actually a really honest standard bearer for that model. It's a Brandeisian regulatory approach to markets. But the, the basic idea is that, um, is that 
that's the normal state of affairs. And you can just, you can fix some stuff to get things moving towards the normal state of affairs. Um, what people don't want to talk about is the fact that it's actually normal for the concentration of capital to be a thing. It's normal for corporations to consolidate, try to restrict trade, govern markets, hold prices steady, and plan for the future. Um, that's central I mean, planning. To be, to be fair, some libertarians are in favor of, like, they think that the entire function of government is to do antitrust and, you know, keep things yes. broken right. up, so... There's it's some true. overlap in these things. Indeed. And it's also handy to remind people, too, that, you know, corporations are basically a legal product of the turn of the last century, whereas, you know, the decades before that, your classic, your classic Gilded Age era with the biggest trusts in history. And before corporations, they were able to completely seal up industries very effectively. And that's back in those libertarian paradise days in the 19th century, you know. No labor laws then, no unions, no EPA, no OSHA, you know, no antitrust until, you know, the 1890s. And then, you know, what do you, what do you have? Wonderful freedom. Oh, no, five dudes control the GDP. Ah, shit. <laughs> so it's very, yeah, you know, again, this, again, gets back to why uh, the right doesn't like to talk about history a lot. Like, it's not, like, perfectly in its favor there. That's why it's better off saying, yeah, we were on an island and I was more productive. Shouldn't I get an extra pineapple or whatever it is? <laughs> It was yeah. Sometimes I was wondering, like, if only Marx hadn't hadn't had a bad smoking habit, or, or like you know a modicum of personal health, he probably could have lived longer than uh, you know than dying of bronchitis at the age of sixty four. Uh, Jacob, uh, your thoughts on what reaction Libertarianism to rocks? I mean, it's a it's a cool ideology. I support it. I, I think the thing about ideology, the thing about libertarianism that I think people miss is that it's kind of in the name, right? I mean, it's about liberty. So if you imagine that there's 10 coconuts, no, but seriously, uh, I, you know, I think a lot of it just comes down from where your basic foundational premises lie. And I think with libertarians, they tend to focus very much on the individual. So if you start from the perspective of my priority is the individual, my priority is the maximization of utility for the individual and you start building a framework based on that, I think that takes you in certain directions. And you could conceivably go other ways, like even socialism, where you realize, oh, more individuals are going to benefit under particular systems. But I think it's very easy to go down particular tracks if you're starting from particular places. And in the case of libertarians, if your objective is, I need to maximize what is potentially best for me, then it's very, very easy to go down these roads, particularly if other people have already been walking down them. Mm. Any, uh, any more responses, anybody, or have we pretty much beaten that one to death? At least for the yeah. At some point, I do. At some point, I do want to do another kind of like um, <laughs> when you record. I, I have noticed that I have a habit of like if I record long enough and talk to enough people on a group session. At one point, we just we do kind of naturally gravitate to kind of the mismix of like philosophy and history. Because at one point, I do want to. Uh, I think it'd be worth doing an explainer or even like a basic history slash theory episode of explaining to people why why or how like um you could call it i mean libertarian slash anarcho but more especially you know anarcho capitalism is like about I don't know, three inches away from like just full on fascism, or at least you know why that kind of you know there's there's a connection there that is real close. And, um, I think, you know, explaining it to people kind of like, but wait, they, you know, liberty is in their name. I'm like, yeah, there's a, uh, you know, the small private tyranny, you know, it's like the phrase small private tyrannies is a, is a phrase for a reason. 
All right. Uh, we have been going for quite a while. I want to thank you, you all again for, uh, braving, uh, this, um, at least, well, we're not, it's the power, our power system is not quite as dodgy here in the Pacific Northwest as it has, as it has been in the last three or four days. So there's, there's been that. And well, does anybody have any follow, any like last thoughts or follow up thoughts before we get to recommendations and endorsements or anything that uh, have, have we, have we not covered anything we, you think, think we, we should cover? Equity. Oh, that's true. We did it. We did it. We didn't, we had, we, yeah, we didn't really quit, quite get to the hedge funds versus private equity thing. Although I'm wondering Maybe if that's, that, put a pin, pin in that one. Yeah. I think that, that might require like another, yeah, another, 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 another episode. Yeah. Gonna get so who's going to pay for this pin? Are we supposed to just <laughs> contribute and pay taxes? <laughs> What's it wasn't wait wasn't wasn't Adam Smith's entire much like how Marx got really like hooked on linen and coats wasn't Adam Smith's example commodity or example like um produced good like, like his whole thing was about pins and like yeah, the, the manufacture pin of pins yeah which seems like an arduous process to be quite honest with you yeah weird <laughs> anyway um I've got a startup for it yeah yeah. Uh, but anyway, any any uh, any thoughts we uh, that we uh, have missed tonight that we should we should have included. Uh, this is open to all any of y'all. By GameStop. <laughs> by GameStop. Game yeah, it's never a better time than now to buy. That's in. right. Bargain <laughs> rates, baby. <laughs> it's great. I was going to uh, recommend uh, the Kindleberger book to listeners if you want to learn about the history of bubbles. Charles Kindleberger's. Uh, Mania's Panics and Crashes is like the classic uh, historical book on big bubbles up to and including the housing bubble with the updated edition. And uh, the best part is the appendix in the back, which is just a listing of historic bubbles since the days of mercantile capitalism, just like when it happened and what the commodity was and a few notes about it. And it's a long appendix because we have these in capitalism uh, so friggin' often. So that's one thing. If people want to dig in a little bit more, that's a, a good entry text. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, any other uh, recommendations and endorsements uh, going around the room? What have y'all been digging on lately that you would like other people to find out about more? Okay. Well, first, I should preface this by saying that everything that I have said tonight and everything that everyone else has said on the podcast tonight is financial advice. And also, <laughs> I would like to go ahead and tell everybody to check out ARC Fintech Innovation. I really like the moves this is making, and I really think it's going to blow up. I also watched this movie on Netflix called Space Sweepers, which is about people in space who clean up trash, and I very much enjoyed it. It's a Korean science fiction adventure, and everybody's speaking in different languages, and there's all these spaceships flying around, and there's this whole adventure, and it was just very charming, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Wasn't uh, wasn't the story of a space janitor, isn't that the basis of Space Quest, the series? Featuring one Roger Wilco as a space janitor extraordinaire. No idea what that is. You call yourself an online person. So, <laughs> uh, I, I, I have a recommendation. Go so for it. I was trying to tile a bathroom yesterday, and I was watching Star Trek The Next Generation. As I've been rewatching that. And um, the episode where Picard picks up the group of, like, cryo-freezed people from, like... But yeah, the, it's, like, the, first season? Know, first, second season? First season, I think it might be second season, um, but it's like you know, 300 years prior to like the star date in which they're in, uh, and the dude's like, "I have a lot of wealth," and it's like, "Bro, that was 300 years ago. Like your wealth is intangible value, and it's claims upon intangible claims upon intangible value." I must contact my lawyer. 
Your lawyer has been dead for centuries. Yes, of course I know that. But he was a full partner in a very important firm. Rest assured, that firm is still operating. That's what all this is about. A lot has changed in the past 300 years. People are no longer obsessed with the accumulation of things. We have eliminated hunger, want, the need for possessions. We've grown out of our infancy. You've got it all wrong. It has never been about possessions. It's about power. Power to do what? To control your life, your destiny. That kind of control is an illusion. And yeah, but with interest, he should, he should have even more wealth, right? That's right. It just, I mean, it, it, was it wisely uh, invested? Uh, it, it, um, you know, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but it's like you can reduce it to a crying Wojak Chad meme or like, or <laughs> dude is like crying Wojak. He's like, but I have substantial means that I've invested for myself. And Chad's just like, yeah, we just dissolved all that. We dissolved all of it. There's no <laughs> private property anymore. Yeah. And it, it, it was, it was seen, uh, has a, I don't call it an extremely famous, but certainly a very landmark. Much more explicitly post scarcity, like Picard's speech, than like anything in like either the films or or original series had mentioned. Where like Picard actually talks about how like you know we have you know we better ourselves, and I'll play a clip of it right now. Then what will happen to us? There's no trace of my money. My office is gone. What will I do? How will I live? This is the 24th century. Material needs no longer exist. Then what's the challenge? The challenge, Mr. Offenhouse, is to improve yourself. To enrich yourself. Enjoy it. Yep. Anyway, yeah. Also, I remember that uh, I was... I was old enough to be a fan of the show the first, its first time, and I, I remember I saw the the first uh, the the, uh, the original airing of that, and I just remember the the the, uh, the country music singer, and they use a replicator to replicate yeah. his. I th- I can't remember if it's, if it's an acoustic or if it's like a a proper Gretsch, but he's a full on like you know very personalized country guitar. Inquiry: You do not seem to be having as much difficulty adjusting to your current circumstances as the others. You mean being here on this tub 400 years from where I started? Oh, heck, it's the same dance. It's just a different tune. Uh, You think anybody here has got a guitar I could borrow? No, but the computer can replicate such an instrument. I was kind of hoping to get one while I still remembered the chords. Yeah, it's a great episode. Uh, Anybody else have any recommendations or endorsements that you would like to uh, offer up? Oh, you know, um, I don't know if you all or your listeners would be interested, but we're doing a um, conference here in April. Uh, not here, I mean virtually, right? Uh, it's the Western Social Science Association, and there's a couple of heterodox economics organizations that do sessions and everything for that. I'm I'm doing a panel. Mitch is doing a panel. You know, good stuff. Uh, what are your panel topics? Who, what's that? Uh, if you if you wouldn't mind, do you do you know your panel topics? Uh, mine is going to be. Uh, a, a paper on bullshit jobs and uh the panel is going to be on higher education in general nice. uh rest in peace Mitch, david graber i know you're doing one on uh john henry one of our professors who just passed not too long ago john henry passed oh man yeah. oh yeah you didn't hear yeah. that no yeah. Yeah. Months ago, man yeah, yeah. Um, that's too bad yeah so the so yeah come, come to happen i think that i think the nominal participant fee is pretty cheap actually like the sort of like just viewer fee 
Yeah, it's only nine dollars. That's why I was going to mention it. Uh, yeah. yeah, for for economists, uh, you know, if you're not given a paper, uh, you can still come and it's only nine bucks. It's like 150 if you are given a paper, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, anybody else who's even, you know, remotely interested in heterodox economics for that price, you know, pay the fee and, uh, and, you know, come listen to some economist bullshit to each other. Yeah, Rob, we're going to talk about John's radical legacy. Um, so you might, you might be interested in that. Uh, I am interested. That's, uh, that's sober news. I'll make sure I check that out. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm. I'm going to that shit. Yeah. Uh, Garrett, you got anything? Not really, Jeremy. I'm 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 kind of fed up. I've I've uh, I'm I'm not really digging into pop culture much right now, and uh, I am largely off the internet when I'm not at work. So like all my internet time is like sneaking away from doing work. So, but I will say, what what do I have to say? Uh, Ronnie James Dio. Uh, this is my third my third relapse of my love affair with Ronnie James Dio. I think I'm gonna go way out on a limb and say he is the best heavy metal songwriter. Uh, I love him. So listen to some Ronnie James Dio, everybody. And uh, what else? Real quick, some clarification. Uh, which era of Dio and Dio songwriting would you recommend folks getting into? Jeremy, your check's in the mail. I'm glad you asked. Uh, I mean, get the like. Listen to the first like three, four records uh, by Dio, just Dio. You can go to the '70s. His band Elf, which like is a ridiculous name, but it's, they're a pretty good band. Yeah, and then Elf is such a yeah. with, Oh, sorry. Go on. Go, go ahead, Jeremy. That's no, just, right. I, mean, just, I want I want the world to talk about Ronnie James Dio. If you know what Dio <laughs> sounded like, especially what Dio would go on to do, Elf is. I mean, it's it's it's. I guess it's similar to the the difference between Hawkwind and Motorhead, but like you know, Elf is <laughs> such a um, it's such a it's, uh, I mean, not just the name. Although I keep I keep in my head I keep conflating it with Elf Power, which was you know the uh, the Elephant Six, uh, Athens nineties uh, 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 noise pop band. But like Elf, I remember you like oh wow this is this yeah this way that's Dio singing, but this is not Dio. It's anyway. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. Are you guys talking about the guy from the Tenacious D movie? Yes, I okay. am. Uh, but yeah, and then Only I would also say that I have. I would say also that Dio's um, all the records that Dio did with Black Sabbath were really good too. So I don't think actually Dio did a bad record, but but the the best are the first handful, and then the Black Sabbath stuff too is really good. And uh, I reread uh, The Birth of Tragedy recently. It's still pretty good. For uh, our to circle back to our uh, our uh, our Nietzsche talk, uh, only thing I would recommend is a computer game that I've uh, got into and finally beat. Um, older video game heads, or computer game heads, will remember a series called Star Control. Uh, they came out started in the in the early '90s. They put out during the '90s. They put out a, a series of three games and kind of went dark because everything they did with Star Control Three was kind of. Um, 
let's just say it was like the innovations of the series were not really well um well received the series is pretty much it started as a as a riff on space war where you got to select two kinds of a, a star Con- is a series the updated one is called star control origins which is kind of like how all of us began where you you play as a uh, a newly uh you know a newly warp speed enabled uh earth and you go around and kind of like you find out you know somehow you're you uh you explore the you know explore the universe meet many different kinds of aliens and fight off an intergalactic and then at one point interdimensional uh being while you kind of like um you know, gain little friendships, make little di- uh, diplomatic wins, and search for r- materials and such. The gameplay is um, not the best, but the writing is ext- the writing and the voice work is excellent. So I would recommend anybody who's a fan of sci- of like uh, ex- uh, space exploration and sci-fi RPGs, Star Control Origins. All right, uh, wrapping things up. I want to, once again, I want to thank everybody for uh, their uh, very generous time tonight on this uh, Wiss Wednesday here in the dark month of February of uh, you know this in the foul year of our Lord 2021. Do you have anything to? Uh, I guess either anything to uh, upcoming to plug how can folks get a hold of you if they have any questions or comments if anybody would like to go first or if you know do you have any you know any publications or anything else you'd like to plug uh feel go feel free i've been i've been writing a sub stack um it's ridiculous everyone's got a sub stack and i'm like the last one to get a sub stack but i'm doing it anyway um it's it's called coolzonekids.substack.com i'm looking at it now i thought it said colonize kids <laughs> which, I th- which I thought was pretty funny, but I it didn't. might actually be appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> so my is that a Robert Evans there. reference? What's that? Is that a Robert Evans reference? Wait, it's, it's not it's Robert Evans. He orbit. talks about it a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's like there was like a person, maybe a historian, was like, "We're in the cool zone, baby," and like yeah. Robert, Robert made it a big thing. It is a reference to that. Yes. Okay. Nice. Uh, and my latest post is on the freezing in Texas, and I've got another thing on GameStop shit, and but just mostly a bunch of jokey stuff. So it's it's a weird Substack, but please read it. Yep. Some folks have podcasts, some folks have Substacks, some folks have both. Uh, Eric, do you have anything? Oh no, not really. Ah, fair enough. I'm just happy to have power. There we go. <laughs> Electricity. The uh, the minor the uh, the good things in life. Uh, Rob, your turn. Uh, yeah, I got a bunch of stuff coming out with affairs. Um, <clears throat> I got an article on uh, uh, Facebook's stupid uh, uh, content advisory panel, which will decide supposedly every difficult decision Facebook has to deal with. And it's made up of a bunch of obscure academics and uh, digital people. So and the Atlanta Council about that. Yeah. Yes, and uh, co-writing a thing with uh, Nathan Robinson on Bill Gates. Because um, always a good time to talk about him, especially this week with him white knighting us on uh, climate change. And then all of his solutions are based on things he's invested in. So that's that'll go in there. And I got an article in the print edition about the IMF that'll be out in the summer and stuff. So tons of stuff there. Uh, check out Current Affairs. Subscribe to the magazine. It's unspeakably beautiful. It's really fun. Yeah, I've been a subscriber for, God, it's been like four years now. Jesus. Same. That a yeah. It is a good-looking magazine. Also, also, uh, full, uh, full disclosure, I have yet to actually finish, um, uh, Capitalism versus, um, versus, was it, what the fuck is it called? What the fuck? The, um, versus freedom. Yeah, that's the one. Get, you know, finished we, it because it's at my house. I was going to say, yeah, Garrett, I lent uh, that to you. That's why. Anyway, um, 
I'll buy a copy, Rob. Jeez, I'm sorry. That's the spirit. God bless you. Doug Lane has been on the show, too, years ago, and Jacob argued with him about UFOs. Yeah, he's he lost. The, uh, he's, the publisher <laughs> of, he's the publisher of Zero Books and the, and the Zero Squared podcast. Uh, Jacob and Garrett, do you have anything? Are you good? Uh, you can check my Goodreads reviews. Uh, I just... Uh, I just did one for no. I'm about to do one for the world is real will and representation. Uh, I might smuggle in personal information. I, I'm I, since I don't have a Facebook anymore. Uh, I'm just kidding. Don't don't look at my Goodreads. Just you know what? Stay offline. Spend more time. <laughs> spend more time offline, everyone. Take an hour and say I'm not going to be online on this on this hour. Cannot do that. I'm a poster. I have to post. Well, you're yeah. You're part of the. You have. But, and you've got credentials and shit. I don't. So I'm going to stay offline. Credentials are a liability, Garrett. <laughs> oh, shit. I'm in the world, yeah. Jacob, you got anything? No, nah, I'm good. Cool. If you want to find me, you can find me on the moon, baby, with my Lambo, because that's where <laughs> I'm going. <laughs> what? What? Hey, Mitch, get... can I ask one more follow-up question about credentials? <laughs> yeah. Do you have to get credentials to know that they're not? Yes. Yeah, okay. See. That's, 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 my... see, that's, the, great, that's the great trick. That's my problem. Greatest trick the devil ever played. <laughs> convincing people that, yeah, anyway. Real quick, uh, last thing, but yeah, everybody, uh, check out, oh, the one thing I did forgot to recommend, I might have recommended it last time, I don't remember, I don't think I did, but check out the This Is Revolution podcast slash YouTube show, which has also just been picked up by the Zero Books, Zero Squared Network. Uh, it's hosted by Jacob Miles, check that, Jason Miles of the band Bitter Lake, and um uh Pas- Pascal Robert of the Black Agenda Report he is they do like YouTube streams about like at least 3 a week and J- uh Jason has been showing up on more and more shows um in fact t- uh, tonight Jason was on uh Ben Burgess's show also a friend of the sh- uh friend of the show he did a they did a movie talk where several different podcasters got on there and streamed on YouTube talking about RoboCop the film which is uh, also worth checking out. Uh, once again, if you have any questions or comments, please. Um, actually, no shit. All that stuff I'll record. I'll uh, I'll like record separate and clip on the back. All right. Um, th- once again, thank you, everybody. Uh, do you have any final words for the viewing audience? Speak them now. All right. And that's it. Good night, everybody. <laughs>